0: Welcome to A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk into a Bar, a podcast with relatively well informed and irreverent musings on religion, news, and society. And now, for your hosts, Rabbi Asher Lopatin and John Geringer. Hey,
1: Asher. Hey, John. How are you? I'm so excited. We've jumped up in the ratings. We You're used kidding. to be number 244 in Jewish podcasts, and now we're number 194. How exciting. I'm excited. And, you know, it gives hope to everybody. There is hope. <laughs> now, now we have to catch up. The Chavitz Chaim podcast is 192. I think we could beat them.
2: Yeah, Chavitz Chaim, like, you know, I don't want to say anything bad about him. You know what? It He's is- right.
1: You should be guarding your tongue.
2: Yes. He passed away about a century ago. And there's actually some incredible video footage, actually, not a film footage of him that, that is available. You can look on online. But he was noted, his name was Yisrael May, Mayer Cohen or Kagan. And he was an amazing Jewish legal scholar and student in the yeshiva of Rodin Poland. But he's known so much for his book called the Chafetz Chaim, which is a, a book about guarding your tongue and not speaking gossip. And so he was a major figure in there. And I want to say, you know, since we are competing with the Chafetz Chaim, that in our synagogue, we had this legendary Rabbi Rockoff. Remember Rabbi Rockoff? Absolutely. Old school. Old school, but outside the box. But, you know, and he claimed... And and by the way, he went to Yeshivar Chafetz Chaim. That's where he got smicha with Rav, Rav Henich Leibowitz, who was, I think, the Chafetz Chaim's son-in-law. But in any case, or the son of the son-in-law, but in any case, Rabbi Rakoff would say, no, no, no. Gossip is the only thing that protects the community from people who have a lot of power. I and mean, when you think of that, pe- when people don't talk enough about bad things that are going on, it could cause a lot of harm in the community
1: because Chaim oh, so. was really if you read his stuff it's really he he was an absolutist mm-hmm. i mean it's almost impossible to talk about just about anything we talk about at the dinner table or the the i guess i can call it fun gossip that we engage right. in exactly no fun gossip I and mean, if there's a toilet, if there
2: is an important purpose for speaking up then even he would allow it. But people are just shy away from it sometimes. And that is unfortunate because a lot of crimes that occur in the mikvah, behind the scenes, wherever they are, get swept under the carpet because people have this idea of, well, I don't want to gossip. But so, but then gossip could be so, of course, so terribly, terribly harmful. It's a difficult balance, but great man. famous
1: story, right? Of the man who felt bad about engaging in Lashon Hara and the rabbi said something to the effect you know rip open a pillow let the feathers go over the all over the place and then try to find the feathers he said that's impossible and he said well that's how bad Lashon Hara can be because it spreads everywhere yeah great a classic story yeah but I still want to beat him in the rankings
2: exactly yes this is a competitive world and Chafetz Chaim... Move
1: aside. We're coming That's through. Right. We have two more to go. So please help us spread the word about this podcast and we can beat him and then go for others. I'm trying to look at some other ones who are ahead of us that we want to go after. There's Kabbalah on physics. There's Emuna at work.
2: Yeah, you know, These are great. It's hard to compete with Kabbalah, yeah. in, with Jewish mysticism. It's hard to complete, compete with Emunah, with faith. But John, I would argue that our podcast, you know, takes in—we talk about everything, Kabbalah
1: and faith, and all sorts of exciting things. That's right. If only we could get the word out. Well, speaking of numbers, last week we missed out on the opportunity for Parshat Yitro to talk about the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. Oh
2: yeah, yeah. You know, they're they're interesting, divided up differently. If you there's a way of reading the Torah when you're not reading it out loud in a minyan, in a in a quorum in synagogue and then there's the tom Elyon there's a different division that divides them up much differently into 10 verses and very long verses so the 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 commandment about the sabbath is a very one very long verse the commandments about you no know, idolatry are long verses so yeah but 10 commandments you know The tradition struggles with this because there were those heretics that felt that the Ten Commandments were more important than any other commandment. And our Jewish tradition doesn't necessarily see
1: it that way. Well, Mel Brooks started with 15, as we know, (laughs) and ended with 10. And and they're not even the commandments in Hebrew, right? They're the utterances.
2: Yes, yes. The is to speak, right? You know, and it's a question. Anochi, the first one. I am the Lord, your God is a commandment. Is it, can, can God command us to believe in God? There's a sort of a, a paradox there, but a Rabbi Landy's taught, and I believe it's from either Nietzsche or Levinas, but I think it's Nietzsche, that a, a lover has, feels they have a right to command being loved. And God is our lover. God loves us and so demands that we love God.
1: It's also interesting that it talks about not I am the God who created you, but I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt, as if that's that's the pinnacle remembrance of which we should be aware, the bringing out of slavery, not I brought this world into being.
2: Yeah, you know, it. it I heard a Dvar Torah, a word of Torah this week about that, that from the Sfat Emet, a great Hasidic rabbi where he talks about that when it talks about God taking us out of Egypt is very particular to the Jewish people. And yet, I think the idea of exodus from Egypt is a universal concept. It's true that the Jewish people feel that it's part of our specific history that we were released from Egypt, and I believe that. But it's taken on such a universal resonance of freedom of breaking the, the bonds of slavery. And in that word, even in the Jewish tradition, means sort of the narrowness. And sometimes we have the term, in between the narrow and the difficult times, Sar can mean an enemy or a, a foe. So even in the, the 10 utterances, even when it refers to, I am the Lord who took you out of Egypt, God is speaking to the whole world. I have the ability to free you. And especially in my weekday job with the Jewish Relations Council, where we we have amazing relationships with the African-American community, this certainly resonates in the African-American community. And that enables you to do a freedom Seder, to do a Motown Seder, to really share the traditions of, of freedom, which means different things for different people. but it's a universal idea.
1: You have to get me an invite to the Motown Seder. That okay, would be we'll get, if that gets you to Detroit, we'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that'll do it. All right, so the next one, don't have any other gods before me because I'm a jealous God. At least he's honest. Yeah, I. you know, a jealousy,
2: zealotry, there's an element where, uh, well, we're really only supposed to imitate God's midot of chesed, God's traits of kindness and not to be, jealous and zealous in that way and it's actually uh, very dangerous and especially you know in israel today when thank god the the jewish state is able to stand up for itself and has power it becomes even more dangerous to have zealousness and jealousness so god yes human beings maybe not so much
1: (laughs) okay number three don't take the name of god in vain now uh I used to think that that meant I am not allowed to say, damn it. Mm. And hopefully, I won't be struck down for saying that just now. But if we're not struck
2: down, maybe that'll get the ratings up a little bit, you know, jazz (laughs) it up.
1: (laughs) Right. Especially live on camera, right? So tell us what that means. Well,
2: really, it is referring to using God's, the Tetragrammaton and God's holy names, not Kinuyim, not sort of nicknames of God, like god or something like that but the jews throughout history really would do anything to avoid swearing or using god's name those who
1: don't know it can you as close as you can get to the tetragrammaton can you tell us what that's all about oh the tetragrammaton yeah that is
2: the uh, the four letter you know jehovah's witnesses so the the yud and the hay and the vav and the hay those four letters are the un ineffable the name we don't know how to pronounce it we we believe that jehovah's witnesses they're the witness they don't know that's not the way it's pronounced but with
1: the closest in english or the closest transliteration be that but with the y yeah yeah exactly i
2: think that's yeah so so just really to avoid that name or any of the of the official names of god but definitely not supposed to say you know god this god that you know not to use but but it's not the same severity so it's bad but not so bad fair enough
1: all right next one is keep the sabbath uh, holy but we, let's kick that to another episode because i think we've got a whole lot of shabbos to talk about right. some other time as parents i think you and i love number
2: five well respecting your parents you know the rabbis a little bit of party poopers because they say that if your parents tell you to do one thing that's against the Torah, against morality, you don't have to listen to them. That's sort of like you can't just say, I'm, you know, just my parents told me to do this, so I have to do this. So if the parent says, don't keep the Sabbath, you Still have to. But the rabbis go even further and talk about that if your parents don't want you to marry someone in particular, you don't have to listen to them. And you, well, you think that, oh, Judaism, it's so old fashioned and, you know, filler on the roof and, you know, that kind of thing and arranged marriages and all that. But no, the rabbis were very romantic and they felt that you got to marry the one that you think is right for you. And therefore, only you can decide that and your your beloved, your spouse, and not your parents. Where it seems Ten Commandments is very absolute, but it's honoring your parents and, you know, giving them whatever you possibly can, but not letting them ruin your life. Hmm. Mm,
1: I think a lot to be said about that one, but maybe we'll send that one for a different podcast. Yeah, that
2: really, because I, you know, as a rabbi, it comes up a lot in, in counseling congregants and how do, how do people deal with parents? We, we have to have a whole episode about that, really. Yeah, I think it really deserves a lot. And, and how do you really balance showing love to your parents and living the kind of life that you feel you need to live?
1: My son, Jake, and I had an inside joke. He rarely, if ever, misbehaved, but he ever got close to the line or said something a little close to the line, I would just raise up five fingers and he would know what I would mean. You know, number five. <laughs> not number that number you were
2: going to, God forbid, smack him or anything. No, like no, no, no,
1: not man. never, never. So now <laughs> yeah. we're entering the first five were between man and God. These next five are between man and man, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And that that might even be the more the more serious ones
1: right but so okay. number six is not thou shalt not kill right it's thou shalt not murder
2: right right yeah killing you got to do sometimes yeah Ritzicha, lo, lo, not low tamit or low taharog but lo tirzach and it, it, the, the torah does talk about the death penalty and it's very clear damav bo. sometimes that says you know don't blame society when you carry out the death penalty it's the murderer who's responsible. On the other hand, Rav Aram held that Torah never really wanted anyone to be killed by death penalty, and that it was only theoretical, maybe rhetorical almost, and that so Rav always against, was against the death penalty.
1: Well, Tractate Makos was the first one I ever learned, was the first Gomorrah I ever learned, and that is all about the death penalty and pouring oh. molten metal down people's throat and throwing them off of cliffs, but but you, you had a very high bar in terms of witnesses who warned them to, to ever get to that place. It said something to the effect, you know, it, mm-hmm. if they killed every few years, they were a murderous like, court or something like
2: that. Yeah, 70 years. And so, yeah, I mean, but I see, you know, John, it, it served you well.
1: You it, it whipped you to shape, you know, it, the, the one and only so far book of Talmud I've read cover to cover. Hopefully there'll be more. All right. Number seven, don't commit adultery.
2: Yeah, well it's this is a serious one, but it rashi is very clear that this is only it's referring to adultery. In, in Jewish law, that means a married woman having relations, a man having relations with a married woman. And does that, mean, does that
1: mean Clinton is off the hook to not have relations <laughs> with that woman? If <laughs> not, not
2: for perjury, but <laughs> but for adultery, yeah, and and it's certainly not. And it, it, I think in some in some Christian circles, this really took on a much broader meaning of premarital sex. And Judaism doesn't have strong feelings against premarital sex. It's not a, approved. But it doesn't have strong... It's nothing like adultery. The main restriction on premarital sex actually comes up with that most women in Judaism are in a state of impurity unless they go to a mikvah, a ritual bath. And the rabbis, and certainly throughout the the centuries, were strict that only married women should go to ritual baths and not unmarried. Since they were in a state of nida, of a ritual impurity... So the men had to stay away from them, so that kept the the women safe from, you know, premarital sex. But
1: that was the fence that is shomer Nagia being being guarding the ability to touch someone of the other sex before marriage. That, how many additional fences did they put up there?
2: Yeah, exactly. And and there are sheleu tshuva, there are responsa that where the prostitutes of the city, the Jewish prostitutes, say, you know. We're not married. We want to have earn a living, and can we go <laughs> to the mikvah? And the rabbis then in that case said no. But there's a discussion. It was a whole, you know, question of a mikvah date, or, or no, sorry, tefillin date, where you know, in the Upper West Side, the guy would sleep over at his girlfriend's house and would bring his phylactery, his tefillin, his prayer items, so he could pray the next morning. And there were single women who said, look. I'm in a relationship. I'm going to be doing this anyway. I don't want to violate the Torah commandments. So they would go to the mikvah and different rabbis rule different ways.
1: Wow. Brings a new meaning to the term walk of shame in the morning, I guess. <laughs>
2: <Right>. But that's <laughs> not adultery. That's,
1: okay. That. All right. Excellent. All right. Eighth is do not steal.
2: Yeah. And and our rabbis, whereas do not stealing is is it's a crime. And in fact, our rabbis say that the the generation of of noah who were destroyed were destroyed because of hamas because of stealing so it's a terrible thing you know
1: wasn't it the case that i, I think i remember reading in a, in a midrash around a, about that that it was at the point where they would steal little things and deem it not to be an issue because the other person wouldn't miss it at all. Sort of yeah. like the, the the broken windows theory, right? The, it's, right. it's the little things yeah. that cause society to fail. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I think that's totally right. And however, the rabbis say that in the Ten Commandments or the Ten Utterances, stealing refers to kidnapping and not killing and not stealing, but not stealing human beings. Because elsewhere in the Torah talks about not stealing, so this is really kidnapping you know and I think that that's what slavery in America was beyond you know just the question of cruelty and terrible it was it was an act of kidnapping and very severe punishment for for kidnapping so that's really holding someone against their will which is slavery is really very much that is that's in the 10 commandments somehow
1: And yet there was a mechanism for Jews to own slaves back then.
2: Yeah. So the slave in in Judaism was really supposed to be part of the family, was to be supposed to be something voluntary. Wasn't
1: wasn't that more like a a debtor's prison?
2: Yeah. So if someone was didn't have the money to pay off, well, not so much the debt, but if they stole something. So not a debtor's prison, but if they stole and they couldn't pay back what they stole, then they could be sold to be a Sort of a slave, but it wasn't, you know, they're holding them like property. So, really, a lot to again, this is these are are laws that really you can interpret them in a very narrow sense. You can really broaden them to the universal laws about human freedom.
1: Fascinating. All right. Number nine do not testify as a false witness against your neighbor.
2: Yeah. Look, that's, you know, that's your perjury. Yeah, exactly. Perjury is a big thing these days, right? You know, sometimes it's defending the former president. Sometimes it's not. Right. You, know, you met with a very famous person this week and who was just, who was honest, who, you know, was under oath and was very honest and risked his career and even
1: his life, just to be honest. That's right. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who we hope to have on this podcast someday. I asked him, we'll see if he jumps at the opportunity to be on the 194th. Jewish podcast in America, <laughs> yeah. made the world. <laughs> I, I don't have to say 244 anymore. I can say 194. Right, right, exactly. And the sky's the limit. Okay, last but not least, number 10 do not be envious of your neighbor's house. How on earth can we police that one?
2: Yeah, I was talking to someone, a Catholic friend, and I forgot what I was talking to them about, but I wanted to say that I'm not jealous of you but something you have and so he said you're not jealous you're you're wistful <laughs> so it's permissible to be wistful like I wish wistful of something but I think really the the Torah is talking about when it affects your actions when you take an action against your neighbor because you're jealous of of them, and and when it, it motivates you, and in fact, I think a lot of anti-Semitism comes from jealousy uh, and envy. And when the Jews in ancient times did well in business or whatever, or you know whatever it is, there's automatically it's it, there's jealousy. So uh, really, this commandment is when the jealousy leads you to to steal, leads you to hate, leads you to destroy.
1: Because one could argue that the entire edifice of capitalism is based on violating number 10.
2: Well, it's to be wistful is good. To be wistful is good. (laughs) That's capitalism. Like, my neighbor has this. I would love to have this, too. That's beautiful. But, you know, John, I would argue maybe that this is about zero-sum game. You know, if you believe the world's a zero-sum game and my neighbor has this house, in order to meet, for me to have a nice house like theirs, I got to take it from them. So yep. then jealousy is is and being wistful is disastrous. When you believe it's a positive some game, like my neighbor can have a beautiful house and that can inspire me to have a beautiful house. That's OK. So it's really how, how you see it and whether it's a positive motivation or a destructive motivation.
1: That was great. That was a great review of the 10 utterances that we have to call them now. Way to go.
2: And and in synagogues across the world, when it's read in, in on Shabbat on the Sabbath and synagogue, congregants are standing up and as it were, like re-experiencing the revelation at Mount Sinai when God spoke these 10 utterances. So really should stick in our lives. And and I think they're they remain as relevant now as they were. Thirty five hundred years ago
1: at Mount Sinai, wherever Mount Sinai was, <laughs> and presumably we should do it kishechad right? Like like uh-huh. one people with one heart. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. And and that's mentioned you know, sort of a few verses before receiving the Ten Commandments that they you know vayichan sham Yisrael It says the Israelites camped facing the mountain, but it says it in the singular rather than the plural. So that's why our rabbis say exactly what you said, John, that when they want to receive the Torah, you had to have a sense of, of unity and togetherness. And uh, look, that, that applies to the Jewish people. and applies to our love for all human beings. And really, can we be united in this world in any way? I felt that that Biden, the State of the Union, really, his, his address, it, it got transformed from shouts of liar, liar, to, he was able to transform it like, no, we all want to protect Social Security. Yay, everyone clapping. So there was a beautiful sense of unity there. You know, we can really create that kind of unity.
1: And I think part of it was because he was a man of the Senate who understood the rhythms of that house and have that kind of banter and not make it feel awkward. You could tell he belonged there.
2: Yeah, you know, it's still even, you know, we'll get in trouble, but, you know, McConnell there is a sense in the senate of building consensus really and and trying to pull people along it's 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 still there you know which is yeah i i agree it's really uh there is something special i you know i don't do did do we did we talk about this john we talked about the state of the union address
1: i don't know we didn't do much but i, I was just going to say back in the stone age when i went to a college i i interned on capitol hill believe it or not for ted kennedy
2: ah great man yeah on his
1: his foreign policy staff and they had me do things like believe it or not i I, i'll never forget this writing letters or memos around jews in syria i guess there were jews in syria at the time for sure i assume there's not many left but i remember writing some memos one on jews in syria and one on terrorism for his foreign policy staff and and this was i was at the time a republican but i i saw this listing on the wall on, you know, do you want to intern for Senator Kennedy? And I said, yeah, I mean, how cool would that be? And his foreign policy staff felt less problematic for me than his domestic policy staff. And and that's when in the Senate, you had giants walking around among yes. you. Yes. Uh, I feel like is. we've come way
2: down from that era. There were, yeah, I mean, right. That was, I mean, it wasn't uh, some of the other, Frank Church wasn't there anymore. And, and, I remember no, one his,
1: time. Church was in the seventies. In fact, I, I'm going to be teaching about him in a couple of weeks because wow. he had a he had a a committee that did reforms to the intelligence community. So we teach that oh, in our national security wow. law class.
2: Nice, nice, good. Yeah, I, I remember also meeting Ted Kennedy once. I was lobbying for Soviet Jewry and so charismatic i mean those kennedys went, you know i really would recommend the movie ethel about ethel kennedy who is thank god still alive robert kennedy's <laughs> widow it's a beautiful beautiful move very sad but yeah great great figures look i think there are still great figures we love we love our senators from michigan so good people there
1: well, speaking of Michigan, I know that your community experienced the trauma there, yeah. and that you were involved in part of the healing of that trauma. You want to talk about that? Yeah, it was. So
2: our daughter actually goes to University of Michigan, and actually, there's some. You see some. You probably you seen some pictures. There are these beautiful depictions of the Michigan A's and Blue hugging the green Michigan State.
1: It's really, there's some beautiful- Which you, which you do not see too often, knowing I people know. from both schools.
2: No, and so it really touched everyone. And it, it, you know, there tragically there are these murders and shootings going on all over the country, but when it comes so close to you, it's very traumatic. And what was really beautiful is that we had a memorial service from the whole community at the largest Reformed synagogue in the country, at Temple Israel, I would say maybe hundreds of students were, came to the synagogue to listen to rabbis and cantors and to be comforted. And it was such a powerful thing when you think about, you know, how relevant is the synagogue anymore? Is the temple in, anymore in the lives of the younger generation? And yet, you know, when they needed it, it was there for them and they came and I feel they really found comfort. I mean, a lot of us just seeing each other, but they really found that sense of comfort.
1: So um, I assume, I assume you spoke.
2: Yeah. So I, I had my part representing the Orthodox community. It's not like I was elected to represent the Orthodox community, but I happen to be the only Orthodox rabbi there amongst (laughs) conservative and reform. And, but yeah, look, I, it's, I want these students to see that the community comes together. And like we said, you know, John, like you said before, whether it's to accept the Torah, the Ten Commandments, utterances, or whether it's to come together in grief and to comfort each other, I think it's so important that we all are able to come together. I mean, right now... I'm working on a letter about common sense gun safety legislation for our Michigan legislature. And we want to, again, come together with the Muslim community, the African-American community, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, the Hindus, everyone. Let's all come together. So there's sort of a power in that. But it was really beautiful to see these these students and that that were engaging with their rabbis. And there was a beautiful dynamic. So there is hope for religion.
1: Well, I vividly remember when you helped the shepherd us, so to speak, after 9-11 and how everybody, it, there wasn't an announcement or anything like that, but people just met at shul the day of 9-11 after it all happened. We all just sat together.
2: Yeah, I remember I remember that. And, and it's so hard because there's nothing you can say that really, you know, words don't, you know, provide that comfort, but Being together really does provide that comfort. We should only know happy times and and we should come together for happy occasions. There's a, when you see people at a shiva, you know, after a funeral, and there there is a statement, nor of simchas, we should only have joyous moments. And in some ways it's ridiculous. Life is filled with, (laughs) you know, all sorts of things, but it's wistful,
1: it's hopeful, you know. Yeah, and aspirational. Well, you had mentioned signing on to a letter there's a lot in the news lately about rabbis signing on to letters where they're opposing things going on in Israel. What's your view on that?
2: Well, I think, first of all, you know, we touched on it at the beginning of this podcast about the Chafetz Chaim, about not saying bad things, and about Rabbi Rockoff saying, no, speak up, speak up. So in general, I think we should speak up, I think, but we shouldn't abuse our power, and we need to speak up with humility. So first of all, we in America Jews, whoever it is, we're not ruling is we're not voting in Israel, we're not living in Israel. We need some humility. So whenever I say something about what I feel Israel should do, it's usually like a like a suggestion, like you know, I think this, you know, but but we should, you know, we should speak up in a loving and a caring way. And, you know, have our voice, have our voice be heard, I think. And, and I think now, you know, there are all sorts of things Israel's going through. And again, we in America might not perfectly understand it. And we're not living in that country in Israel. But Israel means so much to us. Israel is the Jewish state. So I think we should definitely everyone should weigh in. And Israel should consider it as seriously as, as they want to. And I, oh, the other thing is, yeah, not to abuse. Rabbis shouldn't abuse their position. Like when I'm at, on the pulpit, like everyone's stuck listening. <laughs> they could try to fall asleep. They, if they, if If they're really rude, they could leave. But in general, they're kind of stuck there. And there isn't a it's not a debate. They can't, you know, there's no, it's not like the say the Union speech where Huckabee. No. Untrue, <laughs> untrue. Right. right. They can't speak up there. They can't speak after, you know, so there when, when it's from the pulpit, I feel much more, it's important to sort of raise issues, but not give a specific political viewpoint. But, but afterwards, after the services at Kiddush and people are eating and schmoozing and, Wherever it is, I think rabbis should be open. And if it's a letter, you know, rabbis should, should sign on. So I'm waiting to see what happens in Israel. And I'm very hopeful that the president of Israel, Herzog, will pull people together and will, you know, and, and this might be a good moment for Israel as far as the judiciary is concerned and some other things. We'll see. I'm nervous, but um, but I never want to
1: cancel people, right?
2: I don't want to cancel people.
1: Yep. And, and, you know, there's this notion, I, I know somebody who is a former IDF individual, who's extremely critical of Israel today, and yet has said something to the effect that unless you've put yourself or your loved ones in harm's way in Israel, you have no right to speak out loud about Israel. Mm. Interesting stance. Yeah, yeah.
2: You know, you could say that, yeah, look, I, I definitely here and I look people should give it the credibility it deserves I'm a you know I'm a rabbi in Detroit and what do I know and so don't listen to me but that's what <laughs> got me from talking have you ever had someone walk out on your sermons <laughs> yes yeah, I've had people w- walk out it was so crazy because I was about to lead a group of rabbis to Israel on the next day to support Israel during one of the Gaza wars. And we were going to go to Stay Road. We we're going to go really where the missiles were hitting. To And we, we had a one of our hotels, we had to sleep on one side of the hotel because missiles were flying in, rockets on the other side in Ashkelon. So I was about to lead that group, but the day before, a couple of days before, we, I had had a meeting with Muslims and and, and and some groups to talk about how do we lessen the tension. And I talked about that, and then at the end of this, so I talked about working with Muslims but being loyal to Israel. It was too confusing a message or nuance, let's say a message. I said at the end, "Let's all rise and sing Hatikva." And some one person in particular did not rise. He protested wow. because I was too left-wing. This is a anyway. It was, <laughs> Oh my gosh, what a mess. But, you know, you try to do what you can do and it's all right. I am more careful when to say, let's sing Hatikva." I'll say that, you know, I don't want to.
1: Well, especially in your other job.
2: (laughs) Yeah, though, interestingly, we, I love, I feel Hatikva is not just the Israeli national anthem, it's the Jewish national anthem. It's about hope. So when we're in a a mixture of, of Blacks and Jews, I love to sing Lift Every Voice. Uh, which is the Black national anthem and Hatikva, and they're a beautiful combination. So we've been doing
1: that a lot. And I assume that doesn't go over as well as when you speak to the Arab American communities. No, I haven't quite gotten there yet, but we'll see. We'll work on that. You know, no, there well, is a limit. <laughs> well, this is great. We talked a lot about numbers before we sign off. I know you had mentioned that there was an interesting birth in your community involving a very important number.
2: Yes, yeah, so we had a wonderful baby girl born the other day. She weighed six pounds, 13 ounces, six, one, three. And, and why is that so important? That is the number of commandments. That's taryag vote That's 613 commandments that according tradition we have. And in fact, many commentaries say that the 10 utterances include all the 613 commandments somehow.
1: So that's not a great way to end. I don't know what is. (laughs)
2: Excellent. John, it's always a pleasure. And let's, you know, go gossip about this column, this, this podcast, everyone, because that'll get the numbers up.
1: We need all the help we can get. I've learned so much from you as always. Thanks. And we'll catch you soon.
2: Okay. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of a rabbi and a lawyer walk into a bar. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to get our next episode delivered right to you. If you really like us, please consider leaving a review and sharing this with a friend. That would really help our efforts. And finally, to contact us and for more show related information, please visit our website, rabbilawyerbar.com. Special thanks to our production team, David Stone for the introduction music Andrew Bauman for the artwork. And I'm Nicholas Tantillo. This podcast is co-produced with Front and Social Studios in Chicago. Disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Copyrighted material. All rights reserved.